Well, brothers and sisters, grace and peace. It is good to see y'all tonight, whether you are here with us in the room or uh, you are joining us online. Uh, welcome to our uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, great to see you. Uh, I have no idea where the man is at. So we're going to pray everything is okay. And by the end of our psalm, that he will be here. Uh, all is well, I trust for sure. Kurt was here? Okay, good. Very good. So he'll, he'll be here shortly. Very good. Well, one of the things that I uh, encourage you uh, to do regularly is to read uh, a psalm a day. And... Um, as you, if you do that every day, you'll get through the Psalms uh, about two, a little better than two and a half times. Uh, so today is actually Psalm 86 day, if you're keeping track. And uh, I feel like it just fits in very, very well uh, with the things that Pastor Kurt and I are going to be sharing tonight. So let's go ahead and let's bow our heads for prayer. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good abounding in love to all who call on you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me, Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, and our prayers have been answered. <laughs> he is here. <laughs> Come on in, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Go. Go. Okay, okay. Well, good evening, everybody. We are wandering around Jesus' hometown, his home area. 
Of all the places on our planet and all the times in history, he chose this place of Galilee to do most of his teaching, most of his miracles. And it sort of boggles the mind that we wouldn't pay just even a little more attention to it. If it was so important to him, let it be important to us. Now, you've learned a few things, I hope, so far about Galilee. We looked at Nazareth just a little bit. We'll go back to it. It's a stonemason's village right on the side of the Jezreel, which is a lot of farming. We've looked at some of the violent places, uh, Mount Arbel, Arbel. Um, it's both where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, incredible peaceful turn the other cheek location, and yet some of the most uh, virulent, violent rebel opposition to Rome that they ever saw. And the guy that would rather murder his children than surrender to Herod and the Romans. We also visited Caesarea Philippi this weekend, if you were here. Uh, the raunchiest, nastiest, goat-molesting place in all of Galilee. Um, Pastor Steve and I have still not come up with a place in American society that comes close uh, to Caesarea Philippi. It was just bad. And uh, Jesus took the disciples there on one wild occasion. Let's spend the weekend in Vegas, boys. Um, but Jesus uh, made a great teaching point. So not to give you the false impression that Galilee is just braunchy places and violent places, we're going to go to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee today. There's about four, we can argue five, little fishing villages on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And of all the places on earth, I think these are the most blessed ever. Jesus will walk in these places, teach in these places. God will do more for less than he's ever, ever done before. Jesus doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't go to Alexandria, to Corinth, to Rome, to Persopolis. He goes to these little fishing villages. So we're going to learn a lot of them. Uh, tonight we're going to start with Bethsaida. Uh, it's kind of hard to say because it has a, a character in Hebrew that we don't have in English. There's a TZ. So how do you say that in English? Two letters combined. T. Something like that. So that's what we're dealing with. Bait, which is very familiar to us, right, is house. Uh, we say Beth in English, but it, the Hebrews say bait. So like Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of life. So we have Bethsaida, which is house of the hunter. Now this is a little bit funny. It's right on the shore in ancient times of the Sea of Galilee. So what are they hunting? Fishies. When you go around Lubbock, I always giggle. How many more ways can you say flat in Lubbock? I mean, all the towns are some variation, plain view, level land, uh, La Mesa, it's all flat. Sunset. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, sundown, sundown. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same for Jewish towns on the North Sea of Galilee. Everything is something fish. Fishy town, fishy town, fishy town. So if you forget the names, you can just say fishy town one, fishy town two. And Bethsaida is the house of fish, or the house of the fishermen. Uh, they don't have a word in Hebrew for fishermen. It's interesting that they translate, you'd be fishermen of men, right? They use the word hunter uh, because Hebrews don't normally fish. So we're just assuming it actually meant fish because they're right there on the Sea of Galilee and that's the occupation that they did. 
But I want you to see the place, I want you to feel the place, and we'll get into the details. First, I want to show you kind of an overview video of Galilee itself. And hopefully some of these places will begin to look familiar to you. So we're going to see the Jezreel Valley. We're going to see uh, Mount Arbel, where the, the terrorists and, and the killing was. Um, we're going to see the mountains in Upper Galilee moving towards the Sea of Galilee. And then we're going to end with the Sea of Galilee. When I was a little boy, I thought... Uh, Israel was just desert and, you know, a palm tree or two. But uh, Galilee, this region, is, is incredibly wet and green. They get a lot of rain up there. They have a lot of springs that are feeding into the Jordan. In fact, you've almost seen all three. We went to Caesarea Philippi, which is one of the sources of the Jordan. Dan, um, which we haven't seen, uh, but it's... It's beautiful. It looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. And then Bethsaida is right next to the other source for the Jordan River. So unlike Judea, which is very much desert, dry mountains, not much rain, uh, Galilee is, is very different. So let's, let's watch real quick. Uh, by the benefit of drones flying over. So that's looking down into the Jezreel Valley. These are the mountains. I wonder what Jesus thinks today of these roads. Why did they build a road on the mountain? I used to walk that when I was a kid. You didn't need a road. Israeli drivers are the worst in the world, by the way. God walked earth, this is where he walked. Do those look familiar? They'll come back to him. That's moving into the Sea of Galilee. Because there's cowboys in Israel too. Now, come on, you've already recognized that. That's where the Sermon on the Mount happened. That's Mount Arbel. So this is the region between Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. Very mountainous, up and down. It's about 18 miles of this. And coming back to the Mount of Arbel, or the Sermon on the Mount, is a very flat area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee on the east side. It's heavily fought over today. It was part of Syria, now claimed by Israel. Israel wants to hold on to it because it overlooks the Sea of Galilee. So if you have artillery or rockets, you can just really rain down on Israel, the Jezreel Valley from Golan. But you have three major springs that are coming out of Mount Hermon feeding into the Sea of Galilee. If you're at men's Bible study, you know by the time we get to the Jordan River, it's a mud hole. But when it starts up here, it's nice and clean. It's 
This is just north of where we'll be today. And that's Mount Tabor where the transfiguration happened. Again, this is Jezreel Valley near Nazareth. There's Mount Tabor again. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> All right. My heart moves a little bit. That's probably good. When I see the mountains in El Paso, I think for Jesus, his heart moves a little bit when he sees all that again, how beautiful it can be. Well, that's the drone flyover. Let me show you a map real quick. I think this is our first Galilee map. Oh, yeah, that's it perfectly. So this does not do justice to what we just saw, right? I mean, you have a representation of mountains, but you don't quite get it. So this is where Jesus grows up. And remember, it's right here on the Jezreel Valley, that beautiful watered farming area. Uh, in ancient times, at least, they don't want to live in the farming area, so they live right in the foothills. And this little town of Nazareth, named after that shoot that came out of the stump. It's a town for stonemasons that are working here in Sephoris, which is a new regional capital for one of Herod's sons. When Herod died, the Romans divided up his kingdom to his sons so that each little part would be less powerful, less threat to Rome. They would fight amongst each other. So one brother is getting Sephorus and the other is getting Tiberius. So the Jewish stonemasons would come in, work in the city, and then come home at night. So you go up in the morning the hill and you come down at the end of the day. This is one break, and then the sea would be next. Um, Mount Arbel is right over here uh, that we looked at. That's the Sermon of the Mount. Of course, he goes to Cana. So Jesus making this 18-mile trek to the Sea of Galilee is always avoiding this city of 10,000 people. Uh, it's the biggest uh, city followed in quick succession by Sephoris. Uh, this is full of Greeks and Romans and Armenians, Syrians, Phoenicians, uh, Arameans, uh, not Jews. The Jewish area is just a little bit Magdala and then this northern region here. So these cities, and I'm skipping one, but Magdala, who, who's from there? Who's from there? Mary Magdalene, right. Uh, Magdala is an Aramaic variation of tower. And in the Talmud is called uh, the Tower of the Fish. So what are, what are they doing there? Uh, Capernaum is another city we'll talk about next week. It's probably the biggest. It's about 1,000 people, we believe, in the first century. And it's the processing plant for the fish. They cut them up here. And what do they do with a cut-up fish? Yep, they ferment it. Because uh, Romans love this stuff. Uh, Chorazin is another fish town, Bethsaida, and there's a few others packed in there. But this is all a very small towns, uh, Capernaum, the largest, the others several hundred, but not more than five or so. Uh, they are making their living off of fish from the sea. Again, this is not a normal industry 
for the Jews. This has only happened with the presence of the Romans. Uh, so it's kind of a boom town. The wealth in this northern area, even though these are small conservative Jewish villages, and let me stress that. These are not cities, these are villages. Um, in fact, uh, Capernaum, uh, Kuftar, uh, Nahum, as they say in Hebrew, is actually said village. Uh, Kafar is a village. It's not a, it's not a town. But there is wealth here. This is a boom town compared to Nazareth, which is not. Nazareth is just a, a working class town. Um, we, we'll look at the synagogues in a little bit. Um, between Chorazin, which probably has the most beautiful synagogue of all of the northern area, compared to Nazareth, it's, it's pretty shocking. We know from several sources, uh, I think scripture, but certainly uh, Josephus and the Talmud, that the people up here are known for their Judaism to be very conservative. They raise their children reading the Bible. And not all Jews are doing this. Um, This whole area is very much in the grips of the rise of the rabbis. This may sound strange to us, but and we'll talk more about this on Sunday, there was a transition process that went through the way people were led biblically. If we think back to the time of Moses, Moses would receive direct revelation from God and he would tell the people. And then they would either do it or not do it. Uh, Later we have kings. Again, they have inspiration from prophets or from God and it's more of a direct uh, from God to you. By the time of the exile that really had begun to change. People recognized the prophets weren't walking around like they used to. Israel didn't have a king. So in order to preserve their culture, it now becomes everybody's responsibility to hold on to the text. Now the text has been around, but it's not been the central focus of religious experience that it's now becoming. The rabbis are the information brokers, the educated uh, in, 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 in Bible that lead the people, help the people apply scriptural texts to the days that they find themselves. So in a sense, it's a very egalitarian shift. In the past, it was the priests or the prophets or the kings who led. And in the case of the priests and sometimes prophets, you had to be born into those families. You couldn't just decide one day, I'm going to be one of the leaders. Uh, You either had to be called or born into the family. With rabbis, that's different. Um, In a sense, if anybody has the skill, the ability to learn, they can become a rabbi. And everybody is now responsible for understanding the scripture themselves. So to a certain degree, this rise of the rabbi is, is starting to eclipse the old priestly system. Remember, there are still Jewish priests in, in Jerusalem. And there, there, there's a struggle um, between the two. And you'll see Jesus sort of wade into those arguments a lot of times. But the Judaism that Jesus and his disciples will know is very, very rabbinic. All of these towns have synagogues. Synagogue is actually a Greek word that means gathering. And just for grin's sake, what does church mean? (laughs) The gathering. Um, What's the difference between a synagogue and a church? In the beginning, nothing. Uh, We think that church plants and, you know, starting a church in your home and all that kind of stuff is new and modern. Steve and I get uh, books about it all the time. 
is actually how it begins in, uh, in the, the rise of the rabbinic movement. Um, before they had synagogues, they would gather in people's houses and they would study the Bible. And hopefully they would have somebody informed to help them apply that to their day. So this is what Jesus is growing up with. Now to be sure, he still goes to Jerusalem for the festivals, like Passover, uh, Festival of Booths, uh, Shavuot, uh, things like that. Um, but his, his day-to-day religious experience is Scripture. So does that sort of make sense? All right. Before you run on, just sure. p- ponder this for just a second. Um, what could like in the, in the sanctuary, especially? What is the central feature of the sanctuary? Kind of, and what's on the altar? The Bible, right? There's reason. So it could be made an argument. The only difference between a synagogue and a church is 27 books. <laughs> that's that's a really good, right? Yep, yep. Because in the synagogue, the central feature of the synagogue was the scrolls. Uh, I don't, it, you, you don't have to be a, uh, a musical fan to appreciate Fiddler on the Roof. You learn a lot. Uh, at the end of the Fiddler on the Roof, what is the rabbi carrying when they are being forced out of, of their town? He's carrying these scrolls that was at the center of their synagogue, which is making a statement that this is how we are, we are going to literally together arrange our life around God's word. So when we gather here at church, that is one of the things that we are saying, is that we are gathering ourselves around the Word of God. And Jesus is doing this constantly, especially when he's in Galilee. Uh, In fact, exclusively, he goes to these synagogues, and he preaches, and he teaches. Uh, Like Steve said, all they are really is a room with benches um, that have an ark. Um, And usually we can find this very quickly archaeologically. In fact, Marie, can we just jump ahead, I'm sorry, and and show the the Chorazin uh, synagogue? Um, So we can find these... uh, uh, this is a synagogue in Chorazin, which is that, that sort of northernmost town, and it's it's stunning. I mean, it, it's it's one of the, the finest on the north uh, shore. You, you'll see their town in just a few minutes, and it's not a great town. It's better than Nazareth, but it's not great. But this is stunning. Now, they have this local black stone, and it's some kind of basalt, and I took a test on it, and I don't remember what it was, but... It just creeped me out. I don't like black structures. So I, I don't know why they made a black synagogue other than they had black stone there. But it really, really is nice. I mean, the intricate work. There's some mosaics there. Um, the next photo, um, they have a seat of Moses. So this is really nice. So right before you uh, read the scripture, you would sit in this place and sort of channel, you know, what am I doing here? Um, I'm going to speak as Moses did. I'm going to interpret. So uh, this kind of stuff survives. So just get a feel. I mean, I know it's hard from ruins, but get a feel, the stonework, the expense, I mean, the inscription. This is Chorazin. This is wealth. Um, all of the, the northern shore little Jewish villages have this. And then we jump back to where Jesus grew up, uh, which I think is our next one, to go back there. So, yeah, that's his hometown synagogue. Now, it's been rebuilt, um, but is that luscious and beautiful? And it's, it's a lovely dirt color. 
And then, like we talked about before, when we go inside there, we were really shocked because we can't find the ark. Usually that's the most prominent feature in terms of architecture, is where they kept the, the scroll, because everything is focused on it. It usually is just a big box uh, that they've carved out of stone somewhere. Nazareth doesn't have it. It's too poor. Um, this is speculation that that's how they were doing it. Again, it's, this, it's more poverty, uh, humbler means uh, that Jesus comes from. Um, Although, you guys remember what happened when he preached here, right? Yeah, they tried to throw him off a cliff not far from here. So I've had some bad sermons, but not that bad. Give me time. I probably will get there. So anyway, um, let me take you to uh, the North Shore today, to Bethsaida, where we're going to explore today. I'm actually trying something out on you. I'm about ready to sign the contract Friday with our tour guide. And so this is our tour guide doing a uh, test run with you guys. His, I don't want to tell you his name. His name is horrible, but his name is David David Hyman. Um, so he's going to take us to uh, Bethsaida and see, see what you think. He's very typical Israeli. So this is our next video. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the channel. This is David, your tour guide in Israel. Today's tour is to Bet Saida. So join me on this wonderful tour, everyone. To get here, you drive north on Road 87. Along the shores of Sorry, I thought I edited this out, but you see the here we go. Turning north to Road 888. Uh, take that road for just a couple of The Sea of Galilee was higher in ancient times. So it took us a long time to find Bethsaida. One, because it was a small little village. But two, it's far from the river or far from the sea. So you really have to drive away from it today. Decided to take you today to a site which is hardly visited. This is the city of Bethsaida. The name Bethsaida, Beit means house, Saida comes from the root Said, hunter, which could be hunting animals but also hunting fish. And therefore, it makes a lot of sense that many of the apostles that Jesus recruits when he comes here to Galilee are residents of this area, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and Andrew and uh, also Philip. It took a while until all the scholars agreed that this hill is actually the ancient village of Bethsaida. And once they agreed, nearly 20 universities collaborated to excavate and reveal the history of this hill. In biblical times, this town Can you pause it for a second? was the capital of... Yeah, he's, he's going to... Sorry to get into this. So we never found a sign that said, hey, welcome to Bethsaida. 
which, my gosh, can we just put those up somewhere so when archaeologists are trying to figure out where Midland is, we can figure it out. It's hard to figure out a town because they usually don't have the town written everywhere. So actually what we agreed on is that this is the town of Zur. It's an Old Testament place where King David married one of the, his wives from here. And his son Absalom, his mother was from here, from Geshur. Now this is before it was Israelite. It belonged to the Arameans. So it has a lot of history, and that's not the case for the other, like Capernaum and Magdala have no biblical history. But they think Bethsaida is the same place as Zur, because, again, the Talmud says it is. So anyway, this is what he's talking about. Of the kingdom of Geshul. King David, one of his wives was from here. She was the daughter of the king of Geshul, and her name was Maha. And from David and Maha, the child that was born, his name is Absalom, Absalom. So when Absalom rebelled against King David and he fled to the city, uh, this was one of his options was to come here to Geshul and to escape from David and from his forces. Remember how Absalom ended his life? His hair got tangled in a tree and David's troops stabbed him and murdered him. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the one watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. Here we enter into the gate. The city gate of Bethsaida is the largest and best preserved city gate from the biblical period, 10th to the 8th centuries BCE. Look on both sides are these kind of guardian rocks. This is where they found that beautiful stone monument. Can you pause it for a second? So this has caused a lot of heartache in biblical studies, a lot. Biblical scholars like to say this is an early depiction of Yahweh. A stick figure with a bullhead. Now, like I said, this city belonged to the Arameans. And I don't know. I'm an Egyptologist. You can't tell uh, divinities absolutely without inscription. So was this an Aramean god or was this an ancient Israelite depiction of Yahweh? I don't think so. But um, it's one of the things we'll see in Israel. It's, it's very famous. It's in the Jerusalem Museum. But anyway, this is the gate, the, uh, the Iron Age gate uh, of Geshur. So anyway... Can you keep going? Yeah. It's in the Israel Museum. I'll show you a picture in the video. This is the restoration line. Above the wooden beam, this has been restored. Watch the doorpost. Here we are officially in the gate. There are four chambers, two on each side. One, two, three, four. And these chambers were used as a place for offering. But the other chambers served as granaries. Wow, look at the size. There's one, two, three, four chambers. And once you're inside the city, the first place you would visit would be the sacrificial high place. Is that a good thing? The inhabitants of the kingdom of Geshur were Arameans in the high place. Ritual objects reflect their religion. This would be done here. This is the high place. It's like a bima. Oh, look how beautiful we can see the lake from here, Sea of Galilee. Look how far it is. 
Kakosuya. So back then, the water, the sea level was much higher, probably reached the base of the hill. So this hill sits in a location where it can control all the traffic that moves in this direction, north to south. And therefore, it was built in a fortified way. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee when he saw Simon and his brother Andrew at work with casting nets, but they were fishermen. So was this the original house of Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew? That's why it's called the Fisherman House. Let's go see what they have. This is nice. Look at this rock. So the only reason the archaeological report said it was a fisherman's house is because there were hooks in it. <laughs> so there's no uh, deliver to Peter's house. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's probably good. We can shut it off. Um, what's your impression of this town? Yeah, it's kind of primitive. It's got some history, um, and you're, you're, you're getting kind of a distorted view because they've excavated and reconstructed to a certain degree the Iron Age stuff uh, so you can get to the gates, uh, but then they've also exposed some fishing level from the first century, so eh, it's kind of a surreal experience. Um, People tend, although they don't always do this in Galilee, to inhabit the same spots in the Middle East because of access to water. But it's a little bit different um, in Galilee. So one big question we're going to continue, hopefully, to come back to is this little town and three others, four others, are the most blessed on the earth. Jesus will walk these streets. He will call his disciples, for the most part, from this area. He will perform his greatest miracles, maybe not his greatest, but many of his great miracles here. Why? What made them so special? And did it help or did it hurt? So we start off with the calling of his disciples. And remember, this is a a loaded term. The only person that really has a disciple in Judaism in the first century as a rabbi. Um, this is why they call Jesus a rabbi. The way the normal system would work is that you would go to school when you were about five or six. Uh, the first day, they would give you a piece of parchment covered in honey. And as a little kid, you got to lick that uh, parchment and get it all over yourself. And the time of which candy really wasn't that prevalent, uh, this was an incredible treat. And then the rabbi would tell, say to you, remember, the word of God is always sweet. Now, part of it comes from a psalm. Uh, and you'll see people throughout scripture always say, and I ate the word of God and it was sweet. So this is why in confirmation I give too much candy. Because um, it, it church should be sweet. But from that day forward, their job was to memorize first the five books of Moses and then the rest of the Old Testament. At any point you didn't make the grade, uh, they simply said to you, it's clear that you love God and Torah, um, but you should go do um, the occupation, the job of your father. And so the class every year would get smaller and smaller and smaller. Now remember, this is the conservative 
rabbinic Jewish culture that Jesus is growing up in. By the time you get basically to our high school age, um, these students, and maybe there's one or two, or maybe there's none, uh, if, if you can't pass the test, if you can't continue to memorize the material, if you can't process it, uh, there, there's no mandatory, we have to graduate classes, you know, not everybody has to, if you can't do it, you can't do it. To jump ahead, once you had sort of completed that process, and that, I'm, I'm simplifying it a great deal, but um, eventually you would go out and try to apprentice yourself to a rabbi. Now, generally, uh, rabbis fell into two camps. You have the Shammai school, which is the very conservative, if the Bible says it, this is what we do, don't wiggle on it, it's just the way it is. Shammai tends to dominate in Galilee, where Jesus is from. You have the Hillel school, which is bigger in Jerusalem. And these are, you know, the professors. Well, it really means this. And if you think about it, it's really, you, you know, they're, they're the masters. That, there's 15 steps uh, for you to apply this law. The Pharisees generally fall into this camp. And so when Jesus comes south and, you know, he's got his sort of conservativeness and the, as strange as it sounds to us, Pharisees are very liberal in Jewish society because they're adding stuff and they're sort of making stuff up sometimes and Jesus gets after them for that. But um, you have the disciples come out, they begin to look around uh, for a rabbi that they would follow and they would go and interview to the rabbi and say, can I be your Talmud? Can I be your disciple? And the rabbi would quiz them. And we've been through this in Bible study. It's not just, can you quote scripture? They would ask you about a scripture, and they would really mean what was before or after it. So you'd have to formulate, okay, this is what they're saying. You'd have to come up with an answer, not based on the scripture that you're saying, but one that's before or after that. So they could have these discussions that outsiders would think were making no sense. All they're doing is quoting scriptures to each other, but they're showing sort of this command of the material. The point of the rabbi is to not lose the Jewish heritage, to hold on to language and the meaning and be able to pass that on to students, to Talmud. This is so vital because they don't write it down. The rabbis don't write books. Rabbis have disciples. So a rabbi has to pick a disciple that he believes has the mental capacity, the moral capacity to truly hold his message and teach it to the next generation. And if you remember our discussion about tov, to be good, a rabbi is not good until his disciples have made disciples who make disciples. So at any point, if this gets screwed up or mucked up, then the rabbi's not good. So there is such pressure to get the right kind of disciple, Talmud. So that's where we're going to pick the story up in the Gospel of John. When Jesus is at Bethsaida and he runs across some candidates. So you want to take this? Or, or? they run across him. Exactly. And mm. hence, this is when things begin to change. Now they're not at Bethsaida right now. They're probably more down down south uh, where John was baptizing across the Jordan. But most likely at least six of Jesus' disciples are from Bethsaida. Uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and Nathaniel and Philip. Half of them right there from one town. 
And so uh, John the Baptist is involved, and this is in John chapter 1. Um, curious, the term rabbi is used more in John than any place else. Uh, only a handful of times in the other Gospels, but here it really starts to come to the forefront. And so John sees Jesus, and he says, what? Behold, the Lamb of God. And so these guys, uh, uh, Andrew and Philip, most likely, uh, go traipsing on after Jesus, and in pure rabbi form, he turns around to him. doesn't say, hey, how, what kind of day are you having or anything like that. What do you want? Do you allow Jesus to ask that question to you, disciple? What do you want? We are in uh, John chapter 1, verse 37. These two guys from Bethsaida, they said, Rabbi. And so whatever's going on between their interactions with John the Baptist, and when, G- when John the Baptist points to them and earlier, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That they're able to make the jump, connect those two things to Rabbi. And when they are start to follow after him, could it be that they are wanting to go to Jesus to basically say, we want to follow you? Kind of following in the line of how disciples and rabbis interact with each other. And so they don't answer his question. So we're starting to get into this, right? As Pastor Kurt was talking about, it's like you're kind of just, you're not answering questions, you're just asking each other's questions. Uh, So he says, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Keep that line tucked away, and you will see. So then some other things happen. So it's these people from Bethsaida who first called Jesus Rabbi. And um, verse 43 will uh, slip down a little bit. Uh, Well, after he calls, uh, Andrew goes after Peter, his brother, and says, hey, we found the Messiah. Doesn't call him rabbi there, calls him Messiah. And then that's when Jesus calls him. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So he's he's down south. He's headed up to Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. Remember, they're looking for the snake crusher. And the Messiah is the one that's going to crush the snake's head. About whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Um, Verse 46, Nazareth. This is what we were at two weeks ago, right? Nazareth, can anything good uh, come from there? Nathaniel asked. And Philip, it's like the heart that we all want to have. Come and see. So it's like when we're presented with Jesus, master teacher, rabbi, messiah, all that Jesus encompasses. There are things that we run across that cause us to go, huh? I, 
don't know if I can go that far. And the invitation is always, as Philip offers it here, to a very uh, cynical, possibly worn out Nathaniel, come and see. And when these people coalesced in Bethsaida and in the area, just a couple of things that you may recall kind of happened uh, there. Uh, Jesus walked on the water around Bethsaida. Uh, Peter uh, was unexpectedly baptized uh, when he <laughs> sunk, right? And Jesus has to pull him out, right? Not only that, must that have been impressive, impressed on Peter, but also the other disciples as well. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, if you want to flip over there real quick. Wesleyans love this passage. Uh, chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Kind of weird, right? Uh, the reasons that Wesleyans like this is they... Uh, see this as the process of sanctification, right? That we have to grow into our, our healing and to our wholeness, right? Also, one of Jesus' most famous miracles, the feeding of the... Yeah, we, we get that kind of messed up. It's probably a whole lot more than that. Pastor Kurt told me earlier today that this area that we are talking about here had probably a grand total, would you say 13,000 people? Oh, no, it's like 3,000. Oh, 3,000 people, yeah, sorry. Yeah. 3,000 people. And Jesus is feeding 5,000, not including women and children. And this happens outside of Bethsaida. And um, this is the only miracle... Ready? That is in all four of the Gospels. And it happens outside of Bethsaida. So, one would think that we're at this place where this whole area, in some ways, is being deeply touched by this master teacher rabbi. He is teaching as if they, he has authority, not as the other teachers, right? He is feeding people, healing people. He is turning this world upside down. You would think they'd be all in. <laughs> what do you think, Pastor Kurt? Yeah, just to stress what Steve's saying, he has called several disciples from this little town, Bethsaida, and it, it, it's raised their prestige. It's like Billy Graham coming to your town and saying, wow, these young preachers from your church, they're incredible. I want them to travel with me. Everybody talks about that. How Jesus fed more people than live in the whole northern region, generally speaking, is a miracle. It's not like everybody didn't know 
this rabbi, he's, he's doing amazing things. He's working miracles. They're not sure he's a prophet. He's the Messiah. They're, they're all the amazing things that are coming out. <coughs> Blessed beyond belief. So what did Jesus think of this town? Do you know? It has a special distinction um, that no other town got. Let, let me read to you out of Matthew. Um, 13. 13. There we go. That's my page turn. This is a sight of Jesus that we don't often see. Okay, I'm totally turning around. What is it? 13? Oh, I'm sorry. No, 11. <laughs> my bad. We're going to get there. 1120. There it is. Then Jesus, and this is towards the end of his time, but then Jesus began to denounce the cities where he had done most of his miracles because they hadn't turned from their sins or turned to God. What horrors await you, Chorazin? Remember that place I showed you the great synagogue for? And Bethsaida. And let, let me back up. Mine says the Bible, the Jesus began to denounce. What, what does yours say? Reproach? Whoa. Yeah. Uh, let's be technical. He's cursing them. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of jokes I can make here, but I won't. Um, Good call. Okay. Um, <laughs> but he is, he is pretty upset. So what horrors await for you, Corson and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I had done had been done in the wicked Tyre or Sidon, Sidon, their people would have sat in deep repentance long ago. Tyre and Sidon are the two coastal towns that are the Canaanite uh, holds. Canaanites worship who? What's their big god? Yeah. And that god loves a, a good what sacrifice? Yeah. It loves a good baby sacrifice. Uh, we're told Satan's hometown is Tyre. So for a Jew, it doesn't get any worse. And he's saying, you rotten, stinking people. It's actually, if I had done half of the stuff that I did for, for you with the Canaanites that murder babies, th th they would be changed. And again, here Jesus here. We turn him into Mr. Rogers. Oh, he's, he's just loving and affirming of all people. Uh, well, open your Bible once in a while. He's pissed. Um, there are people... Uh, would have sat in deep repentance long ago, clothed in sackcloth and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. As I assure you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. Now, is uh, Jesus have insider knowledge of what's going to go on Judgment Day? <laughs> when Jesus tells you to go to hell, it's a little hard to deny it, right? It's, it's not necessarily hyperbole. And you people of Capernaum, We'll talk about them next. This is kind of his home away from home. This is his big capital. And you people of Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down into the places of the dead. Now this is another fudge. What does yours say? Hades. Hades. It's not Wheaties, it's Hades. So um, Capernaum, you're going to hell too. Uh, for if the miracles I had done for you had been done in Sodom... <laughs> That's another fan favorite, right? Uh, we remember Sodom and the good, wholesome people they were. Um, it would still be here today. I assure you, Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. This always puts a wrinkle for me when I go visit these towns. I don't particularly like them. Um, 
Jewish architecture is kind of a oxymoron. Um, everything they build falls down. Um, so, uh, you know, as archaeologist historian, I like stuff with writing and that lasts forever. Egypt's got a bunch. Israel has nothing. Um, but that's a special distinction, you know. Bethsaida, home of four of the disciples and the place Jesus told to go to hell. You know, what happens when Jesus curses you? Why does he curse? Is he allowed to do that? Doesn't that sort of break the definition of being Jesus? He can do what he wants. But why, why does he do this? It's not just because he's mad. I'm, I'm being facetious. He's, he's got a reason for doing this. What's wrong? Yeah. The, the rabbis, which are a huge help to us because they usually explain what it is when a rabbi blesses or uh, curses you. It works this way. If a student is doing well, if you get it, the teacher pours more of that on. If you understand and th- this teaching is working, then you give more. If a teaching is not working and your, your student doesn't get it or it's just not happening, then you do the worst, the opposite. You take away. So blessing and curses are in that mode. If God can get your attention by doing miracles and feeding you and healing you, he will do that. But if that doesn't sway you, you become, well, where's my next miracle? What have you done for me lately? What did they say to Jesus on the cross? People are shouting out to him. They've heard about this kind of stuff. Yeah, you saved others. His brothers will say it. You know, you're not going to be famous staying up here in the, the, the woods up here with us in the poor areas. You need to go down to Jerusalem. You'd be famous. Show us some more. Keep us entertained. Don't be our God. Be our, our genie. Do what we want. Do what we tell you. Um, Jesus is not ever someone that can be manipulated by his own fellow countrymen, his religious folks, by Romans, by priests, by anybody. You cannot manipulate him. Judas tried to to great sorrow. Um, And I think it is insight into God. He is not going to stop being God because he loves us. He's not going to keep showering us with good things when we're making horrible decisions. What else did Jesus famously curse? Fig tree. Have you ever eaten a fig? You understand why. What is this? No, I'm kidding. Uh, they love figs. figs. I love figs. figs I do. I Come on. <laughs> but they're better in jam. I mean, you ever just like eating a fresh fig? It's not good. Just a little blah. But anyway, he was mad because he went to a tree, a tree, fig tree and it didn't produce anything. It's not good if it doesn't have fruit. It's not good if it doesn't have a disciple. I mean, can you see that pattern that, that continues? We are meant to bear fruit. How many times does Jesus say that? Over and over and over. Um, Disciples have to have disciples. We need to spread the message. We need to do what's right. When we don't, uh, God's not going to keep pouring into us. He's going to find another strategy to get our attention. And it's a curse. So it's very much connected to what has happened in these three communities. Uh, Let's just, maybe you're familiar with the parable of the sower. And it's so... 
so the the sower goes out to sow. Uh, the sower is God, um, the Christ, the Messiah, and He is doing. What does the seed represent? The seed represents the Word of God, and He is, as Pastor Kurt has argued today, through His actions, through His words, through His invitations, He is throwing His seed all over these communities, right? And um, there's a struggle. Obviously, people are attracted whenever your stomachs get full out of nowhere. It's like really exciting. You know what they tried to do when Jesus did that miracle? They tried to make Jesus king, Caesar, by force. And that's not why Jesus came. And so when the Romans are still kicking your teeth in after you've had your stomach fed, maybe you're like, eh, maybe this guy's not the Messiah after all. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering his seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Others' seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Very similar to the phrase, come and see. At least that's the way I take it. And so... It's kind of the, the, these curses that these cities receive. They're getting cursed because this, the, uh, this, the, uh, the ratio of seed, whatever, how many pounds you get a plant, right? When you put the wheat in your, in your uh, wheat drill, right? How many pounds per acre are you going to plant? Man, there's all kinds that was going out into these places. And it seems as if, for the most part, uh, it did not produce the fruit that was hoped for, right? And so when we read about those curses and we read about their opportunity to embrace and allow that word to bear fruit, we are a people that are made by God in his image to bear fruit, fruit that will last, that we, we live our lives in such a way that this metaphorical fruit hangs on our bodies and that we offer it to a world that is lost and hurting and broken and wounded. And people are able to pick fruit off of our tree. And that tree points them to the nature and character of God. Remember the psalm that we read in the beginning? It had the big five in it. Remember what the big five are? Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful. But that is the fruit that we hang on our tree and that fruit can only grow when we say centered in the one that we are to call rabbi, master, teacher. And these cities had all the opportunity in the world to do it, and for the most part, did not. So the history that we know after the time of Jesus, this northern uh, area of Jewish villages is really going to fade from history. Um, the pastor in me wants to say, I think there was something to the curse. 
there is a little bit of a report about Bethsaida. They changed their name, or their name is changed, uh, to Julianus, which is uh, Caesar's mother. So again, what's with the names, you know, trying to suck up to the Romans? I named a town after your mother, don't you love me? But they ended up revolting against Rome in 67 AD, and the Romans squashed them. And that was it. And so archaeologically, it's like, where is this place? It's got to be around here somewhere. But there wasn't much left of it. And we had to really dig down to get to the Iron Age stuff to find stuff. So they all will fade from history. Uh, This northern sea where these miracles happen doesn't really become the center of uh, Christianity that you would have thought it would. Uh, Much later, it does become a powerful center of rabbis. after uh, the temple is destroyed, they move out of Jerusalem and they move up north. But we've still got a little more of the northern area to explore next week. We'll go to Capernaum and we'll see what good things we can find there. Any questions? Did any of this make sense? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Hold on one second. Yeah, we got people watching online. Hey, Barbara. Jesus, Jesus is a Jew. Yes. And, uh, is there an assumption that there was a rabbi somewhere that perhaps trained Jesus during the years or so that he's missing? Yes. And do we know who that rabbi is? We don't. I've seen some very interesting speculation uh, based on some of Jesus' teaching. Like I said, he does... Well, first of all, people say that Jesus teaches with authority, like Steve said, and that's, that's loaded Talmud language. That doesn't mean he's forceful or he's com- confirmed in his beliefs. It means in Hebrew he has shimka, which is a whole new interpretation they've never heard before. So it's not Shammai, where he grew up, and although he does echo it sometimes. Like when he gets into discussions about marriage, Jesus is very Shammai. And so people have sort of speculated, trying to figure out who his rabbi is based on that. But you can't sort of rule out that he's also God and the Messiah, and that he's seen the answers, right? So for the most part, they say he's in this third category. And that was a big deal. You wouldn't see a rabbi with Shimka in a generation, maybe three or four generations. They just You never saw somebody like that. So his prestige, and we'll try to show this on Sunday, was should have been... And it was in many ways like when the Beatles came to America, like when Elvis would dance. I mean, it was just like, what? Blown away. He had such um, something, um, which is a long-winded answer to say we don't know. Um, But, Breck, it's also a possibility that if he was with a rabbi, uh, learning under a rabbi for any amount of time, that it's also a strong possibility he was also told to hit the road. Uh, because, and to go imply your, what, what did Pastor Kurt say? Yeah. To go do what your father did. Jesus eventually was, do- at some point, Jesus was doing what his father did. I, I dispute that, though. There, there's only one half verse where they But said, it's there. But it's not there. They're talking about his father. They're not talking about him. He, he was not a carpenter. Uh, a stone worker. They're talking about his father. Um, but we'll, we, we can debate that. Um, but we're debating it now. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, look at the time. 
<laughs> oh, you can't just cut me off. No, I'm not trying to cut you off. It, it was easier for Christians to say that Jesus was a carpenter than a rabbi because they don't want Jesus to be too Jewish. And so there's a lot of anti-Semitism that snuck into Christianity. And you want to talk about some of the worst Jew haters ever? It was about 200 AD after Jesus. And they're trying to remove anything that showed Jesus' roots. Um, again, my interest is not trying to make people Jewish. My interest is Jesus. And if I really want to understand the guy and love the guy and put him in his soil and appreciate the place that he walked the earth, this was important to him. And, so, and we'll talk about this on Sunday. So much of his language is so rabbinic. Um, you have heard it said, but I say to you again. That's, that's out of the rabbi manual. So he has to have had uh, rabbinic training. Um, it seems right. We, we don't know. He does call his disciples in an unusual way. He doesn't make them interview. If We sort of skipped over that. Um, Peter and Andrew, for, for certain, are washouts. Uh, they didn't make the cut because they're being fishermen, but he takes them. He also takes terrorists. He takes a tax collector. Uh, he certainly didn't have good uh, Jewish upbringing. Um, so it, it's really important to sort of see where Jesus grew up culturally and then how he changes that. Um, but I'm probably asking him when to get to heaven. So who's your rabbi? So now everybody knows. You want to get Pastor Kurt riled up? Jesus was a carpenter. <laughs> No, it, it, it really, it really, it, it's, it's, it's crap. <laughs> anyway, we got to get back to your kids. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, so much we try to understand, and truthfully, we probably don't. But we strive, because we don't want to be Bethsaida. We don't want to be the people that you have given so much to. We know it can be hard to understand this far-off place and a life as a fisherman. But we are people that do understand blessing because our nation has been blessed beyond measure. You have delivered us time and time again, O Lord, from economic depression, horrible wars, dominations by tyrants. And you've given us a place of freedom, a place where we can be who we were made to be. Father... We confess that we often turn our back on you when the food dries up. When we're not being healed, we're not being given what we want. The lure of other places grabs our attention. And we'd rather go on vacation than listen to our rabbi. Help us, O Lord, to hear the lesson tonight. You give us just the number of days that we need to learn, to be different, to make different choices. We don't need to waste the time. You're not a cruel master or a hard teacher, but you are a teacher who expects us to learn. So help us to be different from who we are when we were kids, who we were when we were born. May it be said of us that a life with Jesus really changed us because you are our Lord, our teacher, our Savior. Help us to walk in your footsteps. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Good night. Thank you.